Good morning. So every nine or 12 months, something like that, I like to wash my face. So I shave it all off and just start over. So if you need a moment to turn to a neighbor and make some snarky comment, feel free. I've already heard them all, but thank you. Um, if your uh, parents have a kid up through fifth grade, would like for them to go to age-specific teaching that's offered now out in the lobby, you can feel free. Um, everybody else, we will, tur- and additionally, someone left me popcorn today. Popcorn. <laughs> Between gatherings. <laughs> Tastes fine. Was that you, Zach? That was you, Zach, wasn't it? That was Zach. You're fired. (laughs) We are in Exodus chapter 6. You can turn with me there. If we don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find a blue one. And those Bibles were on page 28. Page 28. Last Sunday, uh, James did a great job of walking us through his text. So, Uh, Thank you for that, brother. I think he's here. Yeah, thank you, brother. Good work. Um, I was really encouraged by your response uh, to him. Sat through both gatherings and just the the support and encouragement and affirmation are really palpable. There's a lot of churches that um, if if the lead pastor isn't preaching, then people don't show up. And that's such a uh, ridiculous way of thinking. We're here for God and to listen to Him from His Word, regardless of who's speaking. And your investment in men who are um, interested in long-term pastoral work is a gift to every church those people will ever be a part of. So thank you for the maturity you show in that regard. And the love and support you give to our residents. Really thankful for that. It's one of the bright spots in our church family and uh, a real display of your love for the Lord and concern that there be healthy churches in other places. So thank you for that. Um, If you missed it, then just a brief summary or recap of last week's text that helps set up what we're gonna talk about today. In, In Exodus 5, we finally encountered Moses and Aaron on the one hand, Um, and Pharaoh on the other. And they're in the same room at the same time having a conversation. Exodus 1 through 4 is just building, building, building to that meeting. And then when it finally occurred, Pharaoh doesn't acknowledge the Lord. Instead, he says, I'm not going to let the people go. I'm going to, in fact, increase their burden, their workload, their slavery. And in response, both the Jews and Moses grumble. They, they complain. They're upset. In fact, Moses even asks God, why did you even send me? He is in angst. It appeared the supposed deliverance out of Egypt was dead and gone before it even got started. But moving into chapter 6, then Yahweh pledged himself to his covenant. And he doubled down on his commitment to his promises, to which Moses again looked at his own deficiencies instead of God's sufficiency. How often we do that. We look at our own weakness instead of at God's power. By the end of the first half of chapter six, the whole project seems to be a failure. 
an abject failure. So we've reached now a pivotal moment in the book. And with that in mind, this pivotal moment when everything seems to have gone wrong, then we reach verse 14 of chapter 6. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The clans of Simeon, Jamel, Jamin, Onan, Jachin, Zohar, Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Miri, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libby and Shimi, by their clans, the sons of Gohan, Amram, Ishgar, Hebron, and Uzil, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years, the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years, the sons of Ishhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Ziri, the sons of Uzili, Mishael, Elazapan, Sitri. Aaron took as his wife Elishib, the daughter of Am- Aminadab, the sister of Neshan, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abishamph. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. Thank God that's over. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and just assume that when I say we're in a pivotal moment, in a pivotal text, that what you imagined was not, in fact, was anything but a genealogy. We didn't see that coming. When Israel is refusing to listen to Moses, they're being beaten down by slave labor, and Moses is aghast with God, what does the Bible turn to? It turns to nothing less than a trusty old genealogy, a list of names. That'll solve it. It seems so bizarre, doesn't it? There is much we could talk about in this list of 50 plus names, but mainly we need to ascertain why is it here? Why 
would God, quote unquote, interrupt the story, especially at a pivotal moment, and insert a genealogy? Well, there's one main reason, and then there's a whole bunch of smaller uh, supporting reasons. And for Tom's sake, I want to just focus on the primary reason. The book of Exodus, you may remember, began with a list of names. It began by listing the names of Jacob's 12 sons. Back in the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are the three, three of the main characters, that then from Jacob, we end up with 12 sons. Those sons are important because they became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when we hit a genealogy several chapters later in the book of Exodus, we would expect that the genealogy would be a recounting of the 12 tribes and what became of them. And sure enough, the list starts exactly that way. First, we have Reuben in verse 14. Reuben was the oldest son of Jacob. And then we're told about Reuben's sons. Next is Jacob's second-born, a man named Simeon. And so along with his sons, so far so good. But then we reach verse 16, we hit Levi, Jacob's third son. But rather than a brief summary like the other two sons, when we hit the descendants of Levi, we're given way more information than we were the other two. So you might think of it this way, if we, if we clicked on a hyperlinked Reuben, then it brings up four names. If we click on a hyperlinked Simeon, then we get six names. But if we click on a hyperlinked Levi, then our browser crashes because we're given way more information. And then after all that information, the genealogy stops. None of Jacob's other nine sons are listed. That is meant to provoke our thought. Why? If the book started with a list of 12 names, why here are we only given three sons? Well, the point you see is that this must have something to do with Levi's descendants. That must be the point of emphasis. It's not a general family tree. Instead, it's zooming in on Levi and Levi's descendants. Why? Well, among those belonging to Levi's family are none other than Aaron and Moses. Now we're getting somewhere. This genealogy's purpose, if you think of it like a detective and we've got our evidence and we're trying to piece together what happened? Why does it matter? Well, this must have something to do with the fact that Aaron and Moses belong to the tribe of Levi. Somehow, Moses' situation with the obstinate Pharaoh and the broken down Israelites and his own ongoing doubt about God's ability to get this work done through him Somehow all that's solved by the fact that they were part of the tribe of Levites. Later in the book of Exodus, part of the familial line of the tribe of Levi will come the priests of Israel. 
The priests were men uniquely set apart by God for spiritual leadership. And we'll see them throughout the rest of the Old Testament. They'll play an important role. So what's up with this genealogy? Well, this whole list of names is here to do one primary thing. It's to serve as the authorization of Aaron and Moses. It is their CV or their resume, if you would. God's decisions to raise them up as deliverers was in no way arbitrary. The, the spiritual work they'd do in getting Israel out of Egypt would be similar to the spiritual work all the rest of their descendants, their priests, would do in ministering spiritual leadership to the nation of Israel. Aaron and Moses are rightful Levites dedicated to God for spiritual work. And that was God's plan all along. If you write in your Bible, you might even write, their credentials for the work are found in their blood. Their credentials for their work are found in their blood. God would use Aaron's descendants in great spiritual weight and work through the rest of the Old Testament. Now, before we move on, there's one other spot I'd like to zoom in on and just spend a moment highlighting. If we check out the fun names in verse 23, we find Aminadab and Nashon. I like Aminadab especially. Anybody's going to have a son. This is a great name. You'd never meet another. You do have that going for this name. Uh, Aminadab's, if we follow the genealogy, Aminadab's great, 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 great grandson is King David. King David, of course, was promised that one of his great descendants would sit on the throne of the nation of Israel, ruling and reigning over God's people forever. His name, of course, is Jesus. That's why in Matthew chapter 1, the gospel, the first gospel in the New Testament, when it's listing getting us to Jesus, two of the people it names are Aminadab and Nashon, which connect them to David, ultimately of which David connects to Jesus. So, do you see what, what's going on? Embedded in the record of names leading to those who God used to rescue the nation out of Egypt is a reference to the one who would rescue God's people out of sin and death. God, friends, has taken history and woven it together in a beautiful tapestry. His power that uh, Austin talked about is a power that's able to do even that. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that before the foundations of the world, God chose us in him. That his plan has always been to rescue his people out of Israel and to rescue us out of sin and death. 
our confidence in God can be so strong. He is trustworthy, able to do everything he sets out to do. The primary point of this genealogy is that Moses and Aaron are God's men set aside for God's task. And that could fill them with confidence. The Levites were the ones God would use to lead his people. And even though nothing circumstantially has changed at this point in the story, we do have a great indicator of pointing ahead that God's going to be victorious. Though the path is rocky and looks difficult and involves lots of sudden twists and turns, the outcome, the destination is sure. Now let's read on. Thankfully, not more hard names. <laughs> Verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, but I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses at this point still struggling to believe. Verse 1, and the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. He shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. In numerous ways, this paragraph is a bit of a recapitulation of things we've already been told in the book of Exodus. The repetition functions to underscore the dominant themes. And yet there are some things here that are new to us. We have not been told before. Consider with me three pieces of information we've just been given that haven't been revealed at earlier points in Exodus. Number one, God reveals in verse four that he will bring great acts of judgment upon Egypt. Well, that might strike you as unfair. I mean, what have the Egyptians done? It sort of seems as though God's picking on one group and benefiting another. This is a reference, this great acts of judgment is a reference to the 10 plagues, which we'll study next Sunday. But what we have here is a pointing ahead to what's coming. I'll reserve most of my comments on those 10 plagues for next week, but suffice it to say that God here is telling us that they're not random or arbitrary, that these are specific acts of judgment on Egypt 
for their idolatry. Each judgment had to do with a different so-called God. And so the Egyptians are not innocent bystanders. They are people who have worshiped false gods. Now, second, a second new piece of information. Look at the first half of verse 5. It says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now, that probably doesn't stand out to you because we're sort of chopping the book up, looking at it in subsequent weeks. But if you were to sit down and read through the book of Exodus in one sitting, which I'd encourage you to do that sometime in the next few months, get together with a few other people, maybe have some dessert, and just read through the book out loud together. You'll notice things for yourself that you'll miss sitting here on Sunday mornings because they'll stand out in one reading. This is one of those spots where this would stand out. We haven't been told before that something God is doing is that God would be known by Egypt. Back in the previous chapter, chapter 6, verse 7, God voiced that the people of Israel would come to know that he's the Lord. But here, we're told the same thing about Egypt. Beloved, God's chief concern not only in the book of Exodus, not only in the Bible as a whole, but in all of time. God's dominant focus and concern is that he would be recognized as God. That God would be seen and known and honored and worshiped and glorified as God. God is zealous for his own glory. He demands that he be known as he is, which makes sense. Because if God is the very best there is, then he must be devoted to what is best. He must be consistent in and of himself. He must be seen for who he is. Anyone, on, anyone or anything else regarded as the Lord is a sham, is an affront to the one true God. The book of Exodus is ultimately about God being recognized as God. God is the main character in the story. It's about him. And he wants not only Israel to know him, he wants Egypt to know him as well. And he wants all peoples in all places to know that he is the Lord. The Jews would know that God is God and the Egyptians would know it as well. That's what's at stake in the book of Exodus. It's a very good thing that God is committed to God being known. Because us knowing God is the very best thing there could ever be. The Apostle Paul said it well in Philippians, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Christian, God's committed to you knowing him. And he's committed that through you, others 
would know him. This is what the scriptures are about. Now, a final issue to draw your attention to is the little sentence concluding verse 6. They did just as the Lord commanded them. The they is referring to Moses and Aaron. Something between the last paragraph we read and the, the first paragraph we read in this section and the last paragraph, the one I just read, somewhere in there, Moses's angst and fear seem to have evaporated. Because from this point on, we don't find a reluctant Moses. We find a fully committed one. One that seems to be assured with confidence of God's ability to work through him, to keep his commitment. And these precious little words they did just as the Lord commanded them are an indicator of it. Moses and Aaron, from this point forward, obeyed God fully and completely, and for the most part, joyfully. They did everything the Lord told them to do. Brothers and sisters, oh, that that could be said of us. That we did. That we do. All that God's commanded us to do. That we've done it just as he's commanded it. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to be said of us? Christian, is there anything God commands you to do in the scriptures that you haven't done? Is there anything God commands in the scriptures that we not do, that you are doing? Are you knowingly disobedient? The Bible's way of motivating obedience is not guilt. It is rather grace. It is the news that we who have failed to obey God can be forgiven by the same God that we failed to obey. That's what Christ is all about. And so our need for him doesn't cease on the day that we're saved, but rather it continues through our whole lives. And the grace that we receive at the cross is the same grace we need to grow up in Christ. Friend, do you need to get baptized? Do you need to stop an affair? Do you need to tell a family member what's true about you spiritually and invite them to believe? Do you need to begin using money in a way that honors God? Is there a fellow church member you need to go to and say, I'm sorry? The spirit who inspired the commands of the Bible is the same spirit committed to empowering our obedience. I want to encourage you today to assess your heart, to ask God to search you and know you, to look for areas where there hasn't been obedience, in order that in a fresh, new way, we could leave today with a commitment like Moses and Aaron, a commitment to do just as the Lord commanded us. 
Being Christians is, is not, this isn't an easy life, but it's a life with a power, resurrection power given to us that we might obey. And we can work at that together. I want to encourage you to invite somebody else into your quest to obey. Let's be a church fully committed to doing just as God commands. That's a precious thing to be said of us. Now, one final section for today, a couple more verses, six of them. Look with me, if you would, at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as, here it is, the same sentence, just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen, as the Lord had said. This is the second major meeting between, on the one hand, Moses and his brother Aaron, and on the other hand, Pharaoh. After the first meeting, Pharaoh threw a fit and made the slave labor of the Israelites much more difficult. So I imagine as news that this second meeting was scheduled was circulating through through the Israelite camps, they're saying, no, don't go again. You're only going to make stuff worse. But Moses and Aaron went just as God commanded. And so what we find in this paragraph is that these six verses are a microcosm of the subsequent 169 verses we'll look at next week. Yes, I will preach in one sermon 169 verses. Bring your lunch and your dinner. What is explained and expanded in the next several chapters honestly is nothing more than what we see in this little story. Verses 8 through 13 record a supernatural sign, one we've already seen in the book of Exodus. Aaron spoke all the words Moses gave him, and then Pharaoh demanded proof, a sign. And Aaron then in obedience threw his stick, his staff, down on the ground, and God in a unique moment transformed that stick into a snake. Now, what is up with this? The ancient Egyptians were overrun with so-called gods. Uh, historians have estimated at this point in what's been discovered through archaeology a list of at least 2,000 gods the Egyptians worshipped. We have trouble remembering to worship one. 
Can you imagine 2,000 gods? I mean, they were everywhere. These gods were integral to everyday life. Nothing of consequence happened in your day that wasn't thought to be connected to some deity. And this meant the supernatural was simply the stuff of everyday life. Very different than the society we live in. In that context, Pharaoh asking for a sign would have just been commonplace, not regarded as odd or weird or out of place at all. Every now and then, you may hear someone or you yourself may have made a similar request or demand. It sounds something like this. If God would do something supernatural, if God would give me a sign, then I would believe. If God would do the kinds of stuff I see him doing in here, then it would be easy for me to believe. I would believe if there was some sign set in front of me. You ever heard anything like that? Maybe even thought it yourself. Thank you. On the surface, that might appear to be a good strategy. But I would commend you to avoid it for at least two reasons. Number one, first of all, if somebody is in stubborn unbelief, no sign is going to convince them. We see that on the pages of Scripture over and over and over. Here's one place. This, Pharaoh asked for a sign, he got a sign. But the passage ends by saying nothing changed. And friends, that's what happens consistently on the pages of the Bible. The signs don't persuade. God condescended and met the demand, but Pharaoh remained in stubborn unbelief. Friends, the truth is the fallen heart and mind have an incredible capacity to rationalize away, to unsupernaturalize things in order to remain in unbelief. Unbelief, you see, isn't a, a, a stance of neutrality. Unbelief is a moral position one takes of being against God. And so no sign is going to work. Even the supernatural signs in the scriptures very often were ineffective to persuade those who didn't believe. A second reason I would say don't act like Pharaoh and demand a sign is because God has given the ultimate sign already. He doesn't do this kind of thing ordinarily anymore because there's absolutely no need for it whatsoever. In Jesus' day in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it was pretty common that someone who was opposed to Jesus would say, well, give me a sign, then I'll believe. Here's one such place in the book of Matthew, Matthew 12, 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees, these were religious leaders, answered Jesus saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 
but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus points here back into the Old Testament to the book of Jonah. If you've never read it, it's only a few chapters. I'd commend it to you. And in that famous story, Jesus points to it in order to say, Jonah was a a prototype, if you will, of something that is ultimately true about me. Just as Jonah was in tossed over and left sunken, sunken down into the sea, left for dead. Jesus will be actually dead. Jesus will be in the heart of the earth in a tomb for three days. Jesus would die and be buried. So just like Jonah went in the sea and was swallowed up by the fish, Jesus was swallowed up in death. But on the third day came the decisive sign, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to those demanding a sign from him, I ain't given you one, none, save my resurrection. That will be the decisive sign for all time. Because if Jesus can beat death, what what, what's left, right? That's it. Jesus' death and resurrection, church, are the ultimate sign. No other sign is needed. We ought not ask God for signs. Not in things like, God, I need to decide, do I marry her? Do I take this job? Do I go to this college? Do I move to this city? Am I going to survive this cancer? None of those are occasions to ask God for signs. He's given you the ultimate sign in the resurrection of his son who is with you and in you and for you. If that's true, everything else is secondary. No new, the the plain truth is If you don't believe the authoritative record of the resurrection, no new sign will convince you. The problem isn't a lack of signs. The problem is a stubborn refusal to listen to God. You see, faith comes by hearing. The nature of faith is that faith is about what we hear, not about what we see. Signs were often used by God within the redemptive story as it was unfolding up until Jesus Christ. They would authenticate the message and the messenger. That's what happened with Moses and Aaron. But God is not sending any new prophets or apostles. The need for those roles is now over. There's no new ones coming. Therefore, we don't need any more signs. The ultimate sign has happened. We have what we need, and it is enough. Let's be content with what God's given us. Now, when Aaron threw down that stick and it transformed into a snake, 
Pharaoh immediately called for his magicians. Verse 11, I think, helpfully, calls them wise men or sorcerers. For a culture with 2,000 gods, it should be no surprise that members of Pharaoh's cabinet included sorcerers. When these sorcerers repeated the supernatural act, their sticks became serpents as well, we're meant to consider this carefully. Some of the commentators I read this week, um, maybe half of them, described this event in such a way that it, it, it's really nothing more than like David Copperfield. It's like they, by virtue of illusion, made it appear that they did what Aaron did. But that isn't what the passage says. It says, just as real as Aaron's snake was, so were these sorcerers. So what are we to do with that? Well, beloved, remember this meeting is not really a showdown between two brothers and Pharaoh. It's not really, in the end, a meeting even between two nations, Israel and Egypt. No, this is a battle between none other than God and Satan. Between God and a God that claims to be God, but is no God at all. A God clamoring for the same kind of power and place. Isn't that what Satan is always doing? So should it be a surprise at all? that part of the way the enemy works is to create counterfeit signs to say, look at me. I'm on par with him too. Sorcerers are people with supernatural power harnessed for purposes that distract and dissuade from God. Think of a witch or a wizard, and you get the idea. In fact, if you were, were, when you leave today, to go out this street in this neighborhood right here, follow it all the way down. On the one hand, you've got Chick-fil-A. It's closed on Sunday. <laughs> but across the street, on the other side of the street, is a fortune teller, is a sorcerer. This stuff is around us a lot more than you might think. Satan is the great counterfeiter. What, when God caused the snake to transform into a snake to authenticate Aaron and Moses, Satan caused the sorcerer's sticks to transform in order to authenticate Pharaoh's claim to deity. Furthermore, a way we can be even more certain that that's what's going on in the story is that snakes were incredibly important to the Egyptians. They were considered divine themselves. In fact, when pharaohs, when a new pharaoh would take his throne, archaeologists have discovered the oath that they would make. 
And in every sentence of that oath is a claim to be following the great snake, the cobra. The cobra was a symbol of the power and might and divinity of Pharaoh. That's why if you've ever seen, for example, a a relic of King Tut, just as an example, the most famous, on his headdress is what? Right here, a, a cobra. So Satan is counterfeiting. He's claiming to use his power as a claim to godlike power. That's what he's always been doing. So I think this is real. I don't think it's pretend. Um, Beloved, if you make it a habit of watching movies that make light of sorcery or that invite you into it, or if you play games that use demonic powers, I'd encourage you to reconsider Is that an appropriate thing for Christians to do? Why would we pretend to use evil power? That doesn't make sense to me. In the book of Exodus, this stuff is no joke. It's nothing to mess around with. Now, in conclusion on this issue, notice, though, what Aaron and Moses' snake does to the sorcerer's snake. Did you catch it? You played hungry, hungry hippo. (laughs) Now, what does that represent? Well, it's that while Satan claimed to have a power on par with Aaron, Aaron's God, he, he doesn't at all. So the consumption is a defeat. It's a, it's a, it's a, I've got God saying, I'm the one with ultimate power. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one that will be victorious. That's an indicator in just a couple of bites of all that we're going to see throughout the book of Exodus. There are many claims of authority. There are many claims of power in the world but only one fully and finally delivers. Which brings us to the point of this whole story, in fact. It is that the Lord, not Pharaoh, is God. The Lord, not Pharaoh, is God. And therefore, he will have victory through his appointed servants. The Lord, not Pharaoh, is God. He will have victory through his appointed servants. Friend, today, the Lord, not anything or anyone else claiming, even claiming powerfully to be divine, the Lord is God. He is trustworthy. None can stay his hand. He accomplishes everything he sets out to do. He's good. And in Christ, he loves you. He's fully committed to you.
What a miracle. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Before I offer a prayer on our behalf, would you take a moment and interact with God about what you've heard? Father, I'd be the first to say there's some weird stuff in this passage from a, a long list of very hard to pronounce names down to this issue of sticks and snakes. We're given some uncomfortable truths and yet ones that remain ever bit as applicable and necessary in our own day as they were way, way, way back then. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would speak to each one of us in the ways that we in particular need to hear. And by your spirit, would you call all of us afresh and anew to a just as kind of commitment to obeying you. We pray that not to earn something from you, but because we love you, that we would be leaving today with a new and fresh and revived commitment to like Moses and Aaron obeyed, that we would obey. We can't do that in and of ourselves, so we just call on you for help. Would you help us to that end? And in this coming week, would you display the resurrection power through us in lives of obedience? And in particular, would you help us to trust you? To be settled in that you, in fact, always make good on that which you promise. In Jesus' name, amen.